This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 11, titled, When Being Done Replaced Doing, wherein we discuss the biggest change to the English language that you've never heard of. Hey, Mike. Hey, Bob. How you doing? How are your travels? Oh, my travels were good. I was in Austin. I ate hot, dead meat. How about yourself? <laughs> I was uh, in a number of places. I ate no meat. You were visiting the in-laws, right? Well, I was visiting some of them, yeah. For part of our trip, my wife and I were traveling with her elderly grandfather, visiting several of his siblings. In fact, I calculated that at one point, the total age of the people in our rental car, not including my wife or me, was 285. That's three siblings, all nonagenarians. That's 285 in town. How, how about on the highway? <laughs> on the highway, it's, you know, maybe 250. <laughs> now, I mention this because I noticed that it's really interesting, the vocabulary that older people hang on to long after those words have fallen out of fashion. For example, my grandfather-in-law referred to a suitcase as, can you guess, a word that you don't really hear very often anymore. Valise? No, that probably wouldn't have raised my eyebrows. A grip, G-R-I-P. Okay, that's a new one on me. And, you know, as you so often observe, I'm old. <laughs> that's true, and I'm actually surprised that you've never heard of that. Yeah, a grip or a hand grip, it was an old-fashioned term for a carry-on, a suitcase. And he kind of broke that out very unselfconsciously. It wasn't even like in a hokey kind of construction. He was just like, where's your grip? 
<laughs> it was just very nonchalant. And you're like, it's right here around the steering wheel. <laughs> he also referred to a couch in a place where we were staying as a Davenport. In fact, I tweeted about this because there was a, a real kind of jarring confluence of old and new when he told us that he hid his iPad underneath the Davenport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his earbuds were stuffed in his Mackinac and his iPad was in the <laughs> Davenport. <laughs> yeah. Now, I did a Google Ngram search, which is just a way of searching for words or phrases among the millions of books that Google has digitized in order to chart their frequency over time. And Davenport, it turns out, peaked in the 1930s and early 1940s, and then dropped off very sharply after that. And I would guess that sentences containing both the words iPad and Davenport are probably extremely rare, outside of Iowa, at least. Yeah, I think the smart money goes right where you said. And I want to mention one more word. My grandfather-in-law asked me if I had ever heard the word sheeny, S-H-E-E-N-Y, used as a derogatory term for Jews. He said that when he was a kid growing up in the 1920s in Chicago's Chinatown, he's Chinese-American, that people would often use that word. And I had never heard of it. Get out. No, I, I really haven't. I guess you have. Wow. You sheltered half-yid. That is, that's phenomenal that you've never encountered that epithet before. I have no idea what its derivation is, its etymology, but yeah, it's, it's sure familiar. Its etymology, it turns out, is disputed. It's sort of of obscure origin. There are a number of theories. Nobody really knows for sure. But what's interesting is that if you do a Google Ngram search for that word in American English, the word sheeny peaks in frequency around 1890 or so and then starts to decline. But then there's a resurgence, a secondary peak, in the late 1930s and early 1940s, suspiciously coincidental with World War II, and then it declines again. So for all of the anti-Semites out there, if you're you know tired of the old standbys like the one that you just used, Yid or kike or christ killer this is your opportunity to reintroduce sheeny to you know a whole new generation of bigots out there well if i can touch but a few lives (laughs) yeah i like to think of lexicon valley as providing a public service you know we're here to help you hate less redundantly (laughs) (laughs) now mike uh, this is apropos of almost nothing but the conversation we just had reminds me of a show i absolutely want to do and it's about a tense that I call the present historical. And that's when historians and a lot of linguists and you speak of the past in the ongoing present. And Woodrow Wilson has a stroke. He leaves office temporarily. And when he, re- you know, that kind of thing. I've never understood why historical narratives have to be reverted into the present tense. And I want to get to the bottom of it. Is it a deal? Yeah, that's a deal. I didn't realize that's what I was doing. And in fact, today's show is also about a tense of sorts. Last year, Bob, we aired the very first segment of Lexicon Valley long before we ever moved it to Slate on the public radio show that you co-host with the great Brooke Gladstone on the media. And for those who don't know, on the media 
and I'm biased, I worked for the show for seven years, On the Media is a fantastic media criticism and analysis show produced at WNYC, New York Public Radio in New York, and distributed by NPR here in D.C. And if you remember, Bob, we talked in that very first segment about something I called arguably the most significant single change in the English language since Shakespeare. Mike, I don't remember what I had for breakfast. How am I supposed to remember a conversation about tenses that we had in 2000 and, uh, what was it, 11? Yeah, 11. Well, that's fine. I'm here to remind you. The change we talked about was the development of what's called the progressive-passive construction in English. Does that jog your memory at all? Yeah, it's all coming back to me. Mike, this was essentially the pilot for the very podcast we're doing now. We ran two or three of them on OTM, and that led to our Slate deal that made this very conversation possible. Yeah, and I want to play the segment that we ran last year on OTM about the progressive passive. Our conversation, if you remember, began with me saying, never mind the progressive passive for a moment. Let's remember what the progressive tense is. Okay, got it. So the next voice we hear will still be you, but it'll be you from last year. Let it rip. Never mind the progressive passive for a moment. Let's just remind ourselves what the progressive tense is. It's some form of the verb to be plus another verb in its ing ending. For example, she is singing the blues. They were playing tennis. I am talking to you from a radio studio. I am listening to you with diminishing interest. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) oh, I I didn't mean that. I'm sure you didn't. So the progressive tense suggests ongoingness. I eat is a snapshot, and I am eating uh, suggests that I have been and I will be continuing to do so for some indeterminate period. That's right. Whatever you're doing is in progress, so to speak. I am trying to break your heart. That's a song by the band Wilco. Now, up until around the mid-1800s or so, there was another construction that was similar to the progressive. It conveyed a sense of ongoingness, but it was in a kind of passive voice. So you might say, the house is building, meaning the house is in some unfinished state of buildedness. The refreshments were preparing. This was called the passival. It imputes onto inanimate objects a kind of action. Exactly. It's weird. Yeah, weird. Though you've probably come across the passival without even realizing it. In fact, Jane Austen used it quite a bit in her very first novel, Northanger Abbey. She writes, The clock struck ten while the trunks were carrying down. In Little Dorrit, Charles Dickens writes, The street lamps were lighting. To our ears, it sounds really strange. 200 years ago, 400 years ago, it was common. And the question is, what happened to it? Well, I asked David Dennison. He's an editor of A History of the English Language. And he told me that sometime in the late 1700s and early 1800s, certain people in England started saying instead of the house was building, something else. The house was being built. And at first, this was only for conversation, private letters, diaries. But then it started creeping into cheap novels and newspapers. And as soon as it reached the wider public, people went ape. You have printed this 
appalling expression. It's uncouth English, an outrage upon English idiom to be detested, abhorred, execrated. A lot of people were very upset about it. <laughs> Those people exist yet today. If you read the letter section of the newspapers, there is, there's always a scold out there complaining about usage of vocabulary. And, and decrying the death of the copy editor. And decrying the death of the copy editor. But, you know, I guess it was ever thus. It was. And in fact, one of the people who was most upset at that time was a man named Richard Grant White. White, apart from being a Shakespeare scholar and writing a handful of books about Shakespeare, also wrote a book called Words and Their Uses, in which he wrote that this new construction, which came to be called the progressive passive, was the worst of, quote, those intruders in language which affront the eye, torment the ear, and assault the common sense of the speaker of plain English. And for somebody like White, who you know, has a cane, he has some kind of weird facial hair that looks like it's out of a Renaissance festival. He looks like he would be somebody who is pedantic about the English language. Well, he's from the 19th century. You know, maybe he was a dandy, but maybe he was just from 1830, for heaven's sake. Right, when everybody was a dandy. You know, if you think about it, it makes sense that a new construction like this would look strange to him, and it would sound strange. But he said that it assaulted the common sense. It was illogical to him. So I asked Denison what he meant by that. When he heard the house is being built, he wouldn't have had any problem with being built. That bit of it would have been fine because that had been in the language for centuries. Being built of stone, this house will withstand any storm. Yeah, But if you listen to that, being built of stone, there's no sense of ongoing action in it. It's a completed state. So when Richard Grant White hears this newfangled, to him, newfangled construction is being built, it just doesn't work. So Richard Grant White heard the house is, pause, being built, where being built means the house is already built. And in fact, somebody who agreed with him said at the time that it would be more accurate to say the house is becoming built. They just didn't hear it the way we hear it today. It was a losing battle, as it almost always is when, when language to the high-minded among us becomes base or vulgar. The scolds never win, do they? For the most part, they don't win because the language has a mind of its own, and that was the case for this new construction. And what's interesting is that for decades, the two ways of saying the same thing kind of coexisted, the passable and the progressive passive. Dickens ended up using both. There's a great example of an English writer of the 1800s named Walter Savage Landor, who used both in a single sentence, probably without even thinking about it. He writes, while the goats are being milked and such other refreshments are preparing for us as the place affords. So there's a guy who wanted to have his cake and eat it too. Now, what's amazing to me here is not that the progressive passive would become the default way of expressing the idea of ongoingness a century and a half later, but that the passive just kind of disappeared from the face of the earth. It got completely muscled out of the language, and history has a way of making you seem kind of fussy and pedantic when you resist changes in the language, right? I mean, Richard Grant White thought the passive was correct English, and this new construction was an affront and an assault. But 
what he may not have known was that a century earlier, the Passival was being attacked by none other than the famous lexicographer Samuel Johnson, who called it vicious. He thought it was a kind of corruption. And here's what Denison had to say. So suddenly the older construction, which had been heavily criticized in the 18th century by Dr. Johnson, was now being defended as pure English by Dr. Johnson's equivalents 50, 80 years later, because there was a new usurper coming in and people do not like change. Huh, that's interesting. So if, if Dr. Johnson took umbrage with the Passival, what was the standard usage before the Passival? I think for Dr. Johnson, the correct way to say the house is building would be to say the house is a building. The book is a printing. And before that, assuming the language didn't begin at six Gisalang, where did that come from? To say the book is a printing was a kind of corruption of the book is O printing, O apostrophe, itself a corruption of the book is on printing, the house is on building. So to resist any of these changes along the way would be to really fight the tide, which is why, Bob, you shouldn't want to, as you've said before, punch me repeatedly in the face for using impact as a verb. And yet, Mike, and yet I do. I am trying to break your heart. I am trying to break your heart. You still are the lion if I said it wasn't easy. I am trying. So that was the segment we played on On the Media last year. One thing we didn't discuss was where this new construction, this new progressive passive, might have come from. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But first, let's take a short break to talk about our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible is a provider of hundreds of thousands of audiobooks delivered right over the internet. Just about every genre of nonfiction or fiction that you can imagine. Audible has a special offer for Lexicon Valley listeners, as we've mentioned. When you sign up for a free 30-day trial membership, you'll get one free audiobook of your choice. You have to visit the special URL that they set up to do this. It's audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. And, you know, I've recommended a, a number of books in the past month or so. Another one that I would really want to recommend is a book that came out just last year. It's called A Jane Austen Education, and it's a memoir by a guy named Bill Derezowitz, William Derezowitz, who was a professor of English at Yale. And has written this book because the way in which he sort of fell in love with Austin's novels was kind of peculiar. He was a graduate student at Columbia at the time, and he talks about himself as somebody who grew up kind of disdaining Jane Austen, thinking of it as sort of soap opera fluff, and not really realizing just how deeply descriptive of the human experience these novels were, until he read Emma as a graduate student and did a complete 180. He now counts Jane Austen as not only one of his favorite authors, but among what he believes is one of the most important authors in you know the last several centuries. So I would really recommend it. It's a fantastic memoir. It's called A Jane Austen Education by William Derezowitz. Of course, if you sign up for the 30-day free trial, you can get any free book that you choose 
And your membership will also include a free subscription to either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. Give it a try. Please use the URL that Audible has set up just for Lexicon Valley. It's audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. Okay, I mentioned earlier that the advent of the progressive passive is perhaps the biggest change in English since Shakespeare. And I know that sounds like hyperbole, but that's in fact what David Dennison told me. Here's Dennison. In the last 400 years or so since Shakespeare, there have been very, very few really clear grammatical changes where you can say something that Shakespeare could do is now completely impossible, or conversely, something that Shakespeare couldn't do has become possible. By and large, although our language is not the same as Shakespeare's, as far as grammar is concerned, rather than words or pronunciation, by and large, it's just that certain constructions get disfavored and used less, while other constructions become fashionable and get used more. So it's usually a question of of statistics, of changes of proportion. Mm -hmm. But this was an example where something completely impossible, the progressive passive, became possible. Okay, so if I get this right, Mike, if I read all of the works of Shakespeare, and I'm frankly not quite there, uh, I will never encounter the progressive passive? No. In fact, if you read everything ever published in English in the 1600s, you wouldn't find the progressive passive, not as far as we know. It doesn't appear until the 1700s. It doesn't really gain currency until the 1800s when it starts to grow in popularity and in acceptance. And, you know, Denison wanted to figure out exactly where it came from. And for a long time, most of the earliest known examples were from the 1790s and early 1800s, and they appeared in the letters and the diary entries of a group of young, politically radical, close-knit friends in England who would all very soon become famous as the Romantic Poets. So we're talking about William Wordsworth, Samuel Coleridge, Robert Southey, Shelley, who was even younger than them, Many of these earliest examples appear in their correspondences. So here again is Denison. So I came up with this idea that for whatever reason, it had become a kind of group usage among them, very possibly unconscious, just in the way that groups of school kids or gangs or groups of academics or groups of doctors develop a kind of jargon, a kind of in-group way of talking. And that these people had sort of spread it among themselves by a social network. Now, that was the idea I had, but it didn't quite work. Why not? <laughs> well, because earlier examples were subsequently found, even 20 years earlier. But these new early examples were in Malmesbury, which is just 23 miles from Bristol, and Trowbridge, which is only 20 miles from Bristol. And in fact, all the examples for the first 20, 25 years that this construction is known about are all in the Bristol area. And this group of poets and radicals, they assembled in a suburb of Bristol called Clifton. So it is possible, I mean, I wouldn't go to the stake for this, but it's possible that it was a dialectism, a local 
usage, which wasn't widespread throughout England, and certainly not in America at that time, which was somehow picked up by this group of radicals and kind of adopted by them as a marker of their group identity. So this entire tense was the product of the cool kids in Bristol using a, uh, a construction and it kind of catching on? You know what I'm thinking of? <laughs> it sounds unrelated, but I know my mind on this. Dave Eggers wrote in uh, a heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius that he and his buddies used to wear their T-shirts tucked half in and half out on purpose to make some sort of statement. Was this the Bristol Literary Circle's half-tucked-in T-shirt? You know, you're actually kind of onto something because Dennison told me that a colleague of his with whom he wrote a paper noticed that these lake poets, these romantic poets, used often this progressive passive in their correspondences with each other when they were making some kind of biting or satirical political point. Remember, these guys were radicals. They were in support of the French Revolution. They later became more establishment and more conservative. But they were using this, Denison suggested, as a way to be kind of self-consciously unconventional. And, you know, what's interesting about the way in which Denison, I think, is attempting to sort of sleuth out the origins of this construction is that he has to rely on the evidence available to him, right? He at first attributed the rise of the progressive passive to a particularly influential social network. And then when more examples were discovered to a geographically based idiom of sorts that then may have been helped by this influential group of poets. And, you know, I'm foreshadowing something I want to touch on in an upcoming episode, which is that as we digitize more and more of the total written material in the world, by we, I mean Google, of course, as we do this, we will amass a larger and larger searchable database of everything the human species has ever printed or published, right? Everything that has survived anyway. And if you include newspapers and magazines and correspondences, we will have the ability to track usages and constructions and words like Davenport over time to a degree that was never before possible. And it's likely that these mysteries, like the evolution of the progressive passive, will reveal themselves more clearly. And that prospect is, you know, pretty exciting. Yeah, well, I think we've established that your threshold of linguistic excitement is a lot lower than mine. <laughs> but I, I take your point. It is kind of fascinating. Are you, what, calling me a nerd or something? Nerd is such a strong and pejorative word. Actually, the phrase that comes to mind is um, pitiful loser. <laughs> well, uh, I guess I'll just have to wear that as a badge of honor. And if you, uh, if you consider yourself a pitiful loser as well, you can write to us at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can find all of our past episodes at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Please subscribe to our feed on iTunes where you can leave a rating or a review. I want to thank David Dennison and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcast. We're done now, right? Yeah, we're done. Later, Gator. Gator.